Hey there, and welcome to Church of the Beloved's weekly sermon podcast. My name is Kevin Zhou, and I serve on staff as the production manager here at COTV. This week's message is brought to us by senior pastor Clint Shambler. He is preaching from 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 24. Good morning, Church of the Beloved. Uh, my name is Clint. I'm one of the pastors here, and I get to preach today from John, from 1 John, that is. Uh, today, I want to give us hope, assurance, and contentment. I want to, if you would allow me to, to give you tools to be as, I guess, pastoral as I possibly can, to be as applicable as I, pa- as I possibly can on how to have a content life, a confident life, not an arrogant life, not a boastful life, but essentially I want to give to you, I want to gift to you the way in which we have ultimate hope that we become unshakable people, that circumstances cannot shake us, that other people cannot shake us, that our emotions cannot shake us, that our circumstances are just that, circumstantial, not truthful. That's what I want to do today. I want, to, I want to, you to have the ability to do that and to take that home with you. Another way of saying it is this. I think we have a fight in our culture today, in our, in our world today. I don't, I don't mean culture as, as something other than just simply the world we live in. I think the world we live in, uh, we are so scared of life. I, I don't know about you, but as I talk to people, as I sit down with people, as I interact with people, People are terrified in life. Maybe you're terrified in life. And I think what we're going to do is we're going to discover something uh, that, that may rub us a little oddly. Because I think today what we do is we're so terrified by life. We, we look out and we see life and we see that it's so unstable. We see that it's so uncertain. We have no clue what to do. And so our response typically is to flee. It's either it's fight or flight right? It's this, it says, well, I'm going to take off. I'm out of here. I'm done. And we scram or we say, let's go. And we, and we armor up and we bolster up and we protect ourselves and we go out swinging. These are typically our two responses when we face something that's uncertain. Uh, I see this all the time uh, in, in my children. It's fight or flight with them constantly about anything. <laughs> uh, I gave them haircuts the other day. It was fight or flight. <laughs> One child flew, and one child said, come at me. I was like, I don't know which one I'd rather have. <laughs> I'll let you guess which one of my children decided to do that. It, it's right within their personalities. It's my two sons. Uh, Nova, I don't cut her hair yet because I would butcher her hair so badly. I like the buzz clips. We do fight or flight because we're terrified of this. We're terrified that if we get cut, if we get nicked, if we suffer in life, we won't recover. We believe, and I, I, I sincerely believe this by observing people, by observing us as a church as well as those outside of our church, by observing neighbors, friends, peers. We are so terrified of the world that we insulate ourselves with protective orders. We will not become vulnerable or open. We won't do it. We can't do it. Why? Because we are so deathly afraid that if we get stabbed, if we get hit, if we open ourselves up, if there's a weak point, We'll get hit, and then we're done, and then it's over, and I won't recover. Today, I want to show you in John, 1 John, what John tells us, that you can have a confident, content, assured, 
and completely vulnerable life, knowing that you can recover because you already have recovered. You can avail yourself to others because you've been availed yourself by Christ. Here's, here's what I want to show you. If you want a content life and assured life, essentially, if you want a life free of anxiety, who doesn't want that, by the way? If I were to go up and ask people, hey, you want a life full of anxiety or non-anxiety? Like, non-anxiety, what are you talking about? If you choose an anxious life, that's where other people need to get involved in, and, and speak into you and help you understand why that's not a healthy choice. To, to constantly be filled with drama and anxiety and all of this isn't great, isn't good. There's, there's something wrong with our heart, with our mind, maybe with our body. Today, I want to show you that you can have a life of no anxiety, I promise you. And it's not me who's promising, it's John who promised it. Here are the three ways I want to show you. We need a faith that's about our whole self, not just information. The first thing you need to have to have not anxiety, to face life, to look at life as whatever circumstance and say, I'm not deterred by this. Circumstance doesn't define me. First, you need a faith that's of your whole self, not just information. Secondly, you need to be acclimated to God, not assimilated to God. First, you need a life that's of your whole self, not information. Secondly, you need acclimated to God, not assimilated to God. And a third that I'll get to. First, I want to show you how this faithful life is a life that is about the whole self, not just informational pieces. To have a heart that is not anxious starts with what John said. He says in verse 16 and then in 24, he says, this is how we know we belong to the truth. Verse 16. And then he gives us some insight couched in between there. And then he ends with this. He says, to conclude the passage, we know it by the spirit. So he says, we know that we belong to the truth. How do we know it? We know it by the Spirit. So we must do a little work on what this Spirit is. If you want an assured life, a life when news hits you, when circumstances hit you, you're not undone, you're not unraveled, we need to know first and foremost it's by the Spirit. And how we typically think of the Spirit or how we think of faith or maybe philosophy or, or maybe worldview understanding is as informational pieces, as bite-sized chunks. It's things that you could take and apply and, and put into your life and put into practice and move on. And they're, they're habitual forming. Uh, and, and while habits are good, I'm actually going to talk about later how you need to have a liturgy or a habit rhythm of your life. We have habits and rhythms here. We don't call them liturgy, but we have liturgy. There are things that always happen to help remind us, to help smooth out our rough sides. You must have that, but first, before you make rhythms, before you make habits, before you make liturgy, you must completely be seeped in by the Spirit. You must completely and totally be seeped in by the Spirit. Now, um, I'm, no one here has asked me this question. I'm about to give an example from pastoral work. No one here, this is not a story about anybody in this room, okay? So I just want to make sure that's clear. Uh, I have been asked in previous times when, you know, and this used to be about... 15, 20 years ago, certainly 40 years ago, it was very, very, very prominent, where the pastor would be coming to the stage and, and somebody would stop and be like, Pastor, you have a word for us today? Has the Spirit moved in you today? Has anybody grew up in that tradition? Where uh, there was actually this very, very famous uh, pastor, um, Charles Spurgeon, who didn't write his sermon until Saturday night. Um, I can't do that. Uh, that's insane. Now, he is one of the best preachers I have ever read in my entire life. And he had a church, uh, 18, uh, he had a church in Britain uh, in, in, a, in a society that wasn't uh, very conducive to that, uh, of 
10, 15,000. This is before microphones. Um, as a matter of fact, quick aside, this, I'm, I'm going to go down the rabbit hole of dorkiness really quick. Charles Spurgeon was a very stout man, um, and he actually would take people on to teach them how to preach, and the very first thing he would comment on is the, the circumference of their chest. And he, he'd be like, what? And he goes, well, he believed that the more boisterous chest you have, the louder you can project out into the world. And I was like, okay, that's a weird first point. <laughs> like, like, basically, you got to be stocky to be a pastor, which I'm all for. I like that. Let's bring that back. Uh, he didn't prepare his sermons until Saturday. I don't know how he did it. That was a gift. But people would ask me, and, and, and he prepared in, in Saturday, but people would ask me, hey, do you have a word from the Spirit today for us? And they would, essentially what they were saying is, if you don't have a word from the Spirit today, you shouldn't preach. And if I knew them, if I didn't know them, I'd say thank you, uh, and i move on. If I did know them, I, I would make a comment later, and I said, if, if I haven't had a word from the Spirit all week long, I shouldn't get up there. Because the Spirit is not something that, it's like a quick hit. It's not some sort of drug that you just take a quick hit of and then move on with your life. The Spirit is something that saturates, that seeps into every aspect of your life. It's like a glass of water. If I was to pour it onto you, it's not just a little information. It's not a quick hit of water that you take. It's a whole rush of presence onto you. It's not a sip here and there. It's being saturated and seeped into every, every crevice, every part of your clothing, every, every part of your being. That's why scripture talks about constantly about being anointed with oil because oil, once it gets into something, you can't get rid of it. It's there. That's what the spirit is like. Instead of a piece of information, it's a flood of a presence of a person. Now, because the Spirit is the third person of the Trinity and not some simple object, he, it's, not a, it's not a physical thing, it's not just a spiritual thing, it's a person, he's the third person of the Trinity. We need to figure out who is this third person of the Trinity. We must ask that question. If I'm to be flooded by his presence, who is this third person of the Trinity? And I want to focus on two aspects. Now, these aren't the only two, but they are certainly the two I want to focus on today. The two aspects of the spirit that make sure you have a non-anxious, no circumstance can touch you, no news can rock you, you are unshakable and steady and all the way through. You're not somebody who is wildly to and fro. As a matter of fact, as we prepare to install uh, elders in, in the coming weeks, one of the things that is evident if you read the, what an elder is, it's somebody who is not given into fads. And the reason is because Circumstance should not change those who are so rooted in the spirit and rooted in God's word that fads come and they go, oh, this is new. Maybe this will be five years, 10 years, and then it'll go away. Circumstance does not rock Christians. It should not rock Christians. We should remain steady. Here are the two things to help you with that. One, the spirit assures us and empowers us. The third person of the Trinity, Holy Spirit, assures you and empowers you ensures you and empowers you. Uh, one of the things that is, is so evident to me um, about the Spirit and about people is that people will not receive healing until they feel comfortable with what's happening. People will not receive feeling, healing unless they feel comfortable with what's happening. It's an impossibility. Uh, it's like trying to convince somebody uh, if you're a medical student or a doctor or something like this, trying to convince somebody to let you cut into them without you assuring them, this is for your good. If you just walked into a room holding a scalpel, 
with a mask on and, and like ready for surgery. Be like, all right, you're ready. Be like, what are you doing? No, I need to talk. I need to be. I need you to show me what's happening. I need you to to point out where the tumor is. I, I need to talk, and then you talk, and then eventually they say, okay, good. Are you ready with this? Yes. Now let's go to the surgery table. The first thing that must happen is the spirit to not to be an anxious to be a non-anxious person. Excuse me. Is you must first be assured. Um, if you go to any beach, you know, if you go to any pool, go to any beach in America and that have lifeguards on duty, uh, and if you've witnessed anybody be saved from drowning, uh, it's actually a wild, wild, wild thing that happens as they're being saved. And if you haven't seen it, uh, let me express to you uh, what takes place. Uh, in college, uh, I tried to surf uh, when I was down in Southern California. And uh, I suck at surfing, um, shocker of all shockers. Uh, but I tried, nonetheless. And, and there were countless other people that were learning at the time. And there was this uh, one guy who was learning, freshman year of college. And he, he goes out into the surf. He's on a surfboard. And he's, he's not coming up. He, he goes under. He falls off the board. He's not coming up. Nobody's going on. Lifeguard jets out, runs out, tries to find him, finds him. And what happened as I was watching this is really, really wild experience. The lifeguard approached this man, grabs him in what can only be classified as a chokehold. The arm goes against the chest, the other arm comes up the other side, and they're restraining this person. They're, they're holding them tight, they're clutching them tight to bring them to safety. Now, I got really interested, so I started asking people what they're doing, and they said, yes, that's actually what they're taught to do. I said, that seems, that seems so mean, that seems so, that, that seems painful. And they said, it could be. I said, what do you mean? They go, if you try to go out and you try to save somebody who is drowning, and you don't subdue them, they will flail so much that not only will they end their life, they'll end your life as well. And I thought, oh, that's wild. Tell, tell me more. And they said, when we see somebody in danger, the first thing we must do is we must assure them that they are being brought to safety because everything in their body, fight or flight, says I'm not. And they're drowning and they're wildly flailing and what they need to do is be subdued, be calmed, be assured. You're going to safety. Now the first thing the Spirit does for us is it's similar to a loving family member that sits down with you, puts their hands on your shoulder and say, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Breathe deep. Breathe in, breathe out. You guys ever had those, you know, yoga breathing exercises where somebody tells you, breathe in, breathe out, and you calm yourself down, you calm your heart rate. You say, it's going to be okay. That's the Spirit's first job, is to subdue you by assurance, to calm you before He heals you. Because without it, you're going to fight or flight your way through everything, and you're going to flail endlessly, and you're going to hurt yourself as well as hurt others. So if you want a non-anxious life, life, the first thing you must see is you must first submit. And the way the Spirit does that, the way the Spirit helps us is by assuring us, I want nothing but good for you. I want nothing but love for you. I want nothing but help for you. And then everything the Spirit does, everything God does, everything the Son does, everything that they ask us to do is put in that line. That's the first thing the Spirit does. The second thing the Spirit does is it empowers us. Once we are calm, once we're able to receive help, it's really important. You can't, you can't jump 
understanding. You first need to be assured that God is good. He is all things. He is trustworthy. I am not trustworthy. The world's not trustworthy, but he is. Oh, I believe that. Oh, and that seeps down into your bones. It's not a bit of information. It's a perspective you have. The second thing that must happen is the spirit enables us to commune with God. June uh, 19 says this, uh, and it's very, very important. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. Here's what Jude 19 is saying. And here's what it's saying about the spirit. Here's what it says. Once we're assured, here's what we must do. We do unnatural things by the spirit. We don't do natural things by the spirit. The spirit is the way by which we do things that are supernatural to us, i.e. this. When we want to lash out, we restrain. When we want to bring malice, we bring encouragement. When we don't want to give, we give. When we want to protect ourselves, we open our hearts. See, if the king of all eternity has calmed you down by his assurance that he's so good, then and only then does he grant you the ability to follow his commands to do what is good in the world. Because you cannot worship if you're always fearful. How can you make a proclamation God is good when you yourself think, oh my gosh, I don't know if I'm going to survive today. Oh my gosh, I don't know if I'm going to wake up tomorrow. Oh my gosh, I don't know if I could trust this Holy Spirit to come and dwell in me, be every aspect of my life, seep into me and be with me. You're not going to do that. You can't do that unless you're empowered by the Spirit to do it. Because we are always going to be nervous for survival unless we are empowered to do unnatural things to our lives. Uh, there's this really, really incredible, incredible movie. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, Good Will Hunting. If you haven't seen it, I, I command you, go see it this afternoon. Watch it. It's fantastic. There's a young man who is brilliant, can't get into Ivy League schools because of cost of tuition. He's on the wrong side of the tracks, but he's wicked smart, as they say in Boston. Uh, my boy's wicked smart, ain't he? Um, it's this incredible movie. That's, by the way, that's all the Boston accent I can do. And if you're from the East Coast, I sincerely apologize. Um, I'm not even going to try New York because that's something else. Uh, in Goodwill Hunting, uh, he, he's this really, really br brilliant mathematician, and uh, he gets befriended by a professor, and the professor is using him essentially uh, to feel good about himself. And he has this counselor. Robin Williams, who's meeting with him. Uh, the character, Robin Williams plays a character who's a counselor. And midway through, Robin Williams understands that this, this brilliant young man is going to be crippled in life to always make the right decision, always do the right thing. What should I do? How should I go about it? Is my life fulfilled? Is my life happy? And Robin Williams' counselor understands something that's incredible about him. He will never do the healthy right thing until he feels assured. And once he feels assured, he will feel empowered to do the thing which is good. So in this iconic scene. Robin Williams is sitting down with, with Matt Damon's character, and he's basically running through all the reasons why his life isn't good, his life isn't great, what's stopping him, and Robin Williams' character just looks at me and goes, it's not your fault. And Matt Damon goes, I know it's not my fault. I know he didn't know it yet. He didn't feel it yet. He wasn't empowered yet to do the thing which was unnatural to him. His entire life, he naturally understood fight or flight. I must make for myself something. I must do for myself something. I must protect myself. And he was a sarcastic guy, and he was a, he was a fighter. He was a brawler. And Robin Williams says, it's not your fault. 
He goes, I know it's not my fault. And he says this over and over and over. And Matt Damon's getting angrier and angrier, all the while saying, I know, angrily. He's like, I don't think you do. Because <laughs> if you did know, if you truly understood, you wouldn't become angry. You'd become assured. And finally, finally, Rob Williams' character says, it's not your fault, and Matt Damon breaks. And he sobs, and they embrace, and they hold, and they hug each other. And then, only then was he empowered to do something that was unnatural to him at that time. Once he broke, once he was vulnerable, once he was open, then things became much more possible for him. The Spirit is the empowering force that allows us to worship when we should not be able to worship, that allows us to serve when we should not be able to serve, that allows us, instead of doing what's natural to us, when we want to get even with so-and-so, we say, I'm okay. When we don't want to give of our time, energy, money, effort, we say, it's okay. I told you we were gonna talk about liturgy, uh, and, and let me talk about it now. It's rhythms in our lives. It's rhythms in our lives. And what happens with rhythms of our lives is we have this thing called family dinner. Friends and family come together for dinner. And inevitably, every single family dinner that comes about has always happened to fall on a day in which I say this, I'm tired from the week, I'm tired from today, I just want to go home and sleep. And I look at the calendar, I'm like, oh, it's family dinner. And then I go, oh, I got to clean the house and prepare to host and cook something. And I go, oh. Now, what's happening naturally in me? My natural ability is to say, I don't want to commune with others. I want to protect myself. I want to hibernate. I want to, I want to flight. But I look at the rhythm. I look at the commands. I look at the obedience and I say, but Clint, get over yourself. Just get over yourself. And that's what bolsters me to do something that's unnatural to me. This, this isn't me saying, oh, look how great I am. This is me saying, I don't want to at times, and I just want to hibernate and, and sleep. That's all I want to do. And the only way, it's not natural for me to want to do that. It's the Spirit saying, Clint, go, yes, Spirit, what are you doing? I'm doing what I want to do. Is that what I asked you to do? No, it's not. Do you see? The only way I'll even think about doing that is if I believe the Spirit's conviction in me that He is good and has the best intention for me. And then, and only then, will I follow. I will be empowered to do so. The second thing that's a must for a, a, a content life, a non-anxious life, John tells us in verse 22, to assimilate, not acclimate. To assimilate and not acclimate. It says in verse 22 that we get to receive whatever we ask because we have kept his commands. Now, church, really quick. Doesn't this, I'm going to use a, a phrase, our fight or flight instinct is natural to us. The other natural thing to our hearts and our souls is something we call works righteousness. I do good things, I get good things. Essentially, it's karmic. We believe God is, is some sort of karmic deity, that if I obey him long enough, he'll give me good things. If I do bad things, then I get bad things. Crime, punishment, good behavior rewards. And actually, we look at this and we say, well, Clint, isn't that faster? That's what it's saying right here, right? We receive whatever we ask for because you keep his commands. That sounds like if I want things, I, I simply just follow the script and then I get good things. And the reality is, it's not what John's saying. 
If we just look at that, if we just look at those words, yes, but look at what he's, how does it, how, how is it put in there? The spirit assures us and then allows us to obey. And then it says, here's how you have a non-anxious life. Here's how you have an assured life. Here's how you get what you've always wanted is by changing the focus of your worship. By changing the focus of your worship from you and what you want to him and what he wants. The order that John lays out is you are assured by the Spirit, you obey by being empowered by the Spirit, then you ask, and then you receive. That's the order. The order is not obedience, ask, receive, assured. That's not the order. Uh, that's how my children operate on Saturdays when they want screen time. They, they do all the things. They clean up their bed. They, they feed the dog. They're very pleasant to me and smile. And they, they mind your P's and Q's, right? Old way of saying it. And then they always look at me at about 11 o'clock in the morning, just with this very sheepish grin, kind of leaning in. And I was I'm like, we're not doing screens right now. And they... They say, of course, Dad. No, of course. <laughs> you don't believe that. <laughs> you're just doing that so that I don't say, then, okay, hey, if you're going to throw a fit, we're taking away screens. They say, of course, Dad. They don't believe that right now. They're learning to. And I have to tell them time and time and time again. Finally, yesterday, Cohen gets upset and he goes, Dad, I, I just really want screens. And I have to look at him and go, son, it's Saturday. It's Sabbath for us. I love playing video games with you. Don't you think that dad wants to play video games with you? And he goes, yeah. And he walks away assured. He walks away knowing. I don't have to ask dad because dad's going to give me what we do together on our Sabbath. I have confidence that dad's going to do that. It's like this. It's like if you were to walk into your, uh, your, your boss's or your company's uh, HR department looking for PTO. You pay time off, you're, you're walking in. And if you walk in knowing that you have zero PTO, you've used it all already, and it's a big project happening and it's all hands on deck. If you walked into that and you said, hey, I need some PTO, how confident are you when you ask that? Or do you couch it? Hey, I know that I have zero PTO left, but this is a really important week. And you just start running through all the ways. It's my sister's wedding and she's the only sister that I have and I'm actually a groomsman. And you start walking through all the important details of why it's so, so important to go. Do you have confidence that your oversight will give you that paid time off? You have none. Why? Because you, you have zero standing. You have zero assurance. It's only going to be by their good graces that they give you that PTO because you have no right to say it. Now, conversely, imagine if you have saved up all your PTO it's months in advance, you have a good working relationship with your boss, and you walk in, and you would say this, I'm putting in PTO, I have 15 days left, I'm taking 11 of them, it's on these dates, I've already cleared it with the project team, here you go. And you kind of walk out, head held high, knowing that's going to happen. It has to happen. They can't take it from me because I've followed everything. Now when I ask, I will receive. That's the same way with God. With God, we walk in knowing what he has already granted us legally. So when you say, Father, forgive me, when you repent of your sins, if you're not repenting your sins based upon Christ's death and resurrection, you're doing it on a hope and a prayer. Oh, I pray that I'm good enough that God forgives me. However, 
If you know that Christ has died for you, taken your place on the cross, you walk into the throne room and you say, Father, forgive me, and you know that he will forgive you. Otherwise, you'll be anxious every single time you sin. You'll hide. You'll protect. You'll cocoon up. See, what we must understand is this is, a, this is not assimilation, acclamation to Christ. I said that wrong earlier. I flipped those two. Let me correct myself now. It's not by assimilation, but acclamation. You don't simply fall in line and then get what you want. Your taste for what you want changes. Your taste for what you want changes. Um, did you know that it takes 10 times of tasting something before your taste buds can actually determine if you like something or not? 10 times of tasting something, which apparently I've only tasted ice cream nine times. I haven't done that 10th yet to really determine if I like it or not. Uh, sushi, the same thing. I've done, I've done nine, not 10. It takes 10 times before you can actually say, I like this or I don't. That's the same with God. Our taste changes based upon his assurance of us. And since our natural instinct is fight or flight, since our natural instinct is to, is to not, not go near that, not submit myself to his spirit, not be assured, not feel confident, we're, we're Matt Damon in goodwill hunting. We want to protect. We want to throw things up all the time. It takes time for you to acclimate to the ways of God, not assimilate. He doesn't want good little soldiers he wants sons and daughters. And do you know how sons and daughters learn about the family? They're around their family. They don't get in line. That's a soldier. They acclimate to the ways of God. And lastly, here's, I, I held off on this third because if I was to say this point at the beginning, you all would have been waiting for me to explain this point. And I'm going to say something that many of you are, it's going to hit a nerve in our, our understanding today. I'll just tell you that right now. This doesn't preach out in the streets. The way in which that you can have a non-anxious life is by taking on trauma, not keeping boundaries. See why I saved it until now. The way in which you grow to not be anxious is to have trauma be brought on to you, not keep boundaries. Let me explain. Would you, would you allow me? You say, Pastor, you're treading. I know. Would you allow me the grace to try to explain? And then if I don't do my job, please come back and we can talk about First John and what he says. And I'd love to answer questions. Allow me the grace. It says in First John, if our hearts condemn us, and if we know that we're saved, so if our hearts condemn us, if I feel bad in life, and if I'm a Christian, then what you're saying is this, and this is John's point, and this is my point of trauma, not boundaries, and, and I'll get there. The first thing we understand is John says, if your heart condemns you, if you ever feel bad, if you ever feel nervous, if you're ever anxious, and you count yourself a Christian, there are two things that are diametrically opposed and can't live together. And you say, what are those two things? Romans 5 says this. I have been justified in Christ. Therefore, since we've been justified through the faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Romans says. Romans says that if you're a Christian, you've been justified with God and you have peace with him. Now, church, question. Do you feel at peace with God all the time? Answer, no. Let me answer for myself. No. I don't feel at peace with God all the time. 
I do question myself constantly. And the thing that I have to do is exactly what I'm trying to say here, is to understand that every single time I question myself before God, do you know what I'm being? Arrogant. And you say, no, 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 that, that's humble. Let me show you. If you think to yourself, of course God would accept me. I'm great and glorious. Of course I'm good. Of course God would forgive me. That's classic arrogance, is it not? That's the easy one to say, no, you can't demand God accept you. That's arrogant. But if I say to God, I'm too bad, I'm too bad, I'm too bad, I'm too awful, I'm too awful, he'll never accept me. I'm also being arrogant because I'm taking my feeling above God's word. That's what arrogance is. Arrogance is believing my station, my view, my feelings are above God's feelings, God's thoughts, God's words. And God says in Romans, you have been justified in Christ. Justified, legal, final, stamp, done. And every time I say, no, 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 I'm too awful or I'm too good, it's the same exact, it's arrogance, it's proud. I believe my way above God's word that's the definition of arrogance. Now, what does God's word say to us? The truth of the matter is, Scripture says in Romans 3.23, says this. Let me start with the, the first arrogance, the classic arrogance. I'm so good. Okay? Here's what Romans says. All have fallen short. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay? Classic arrogance. Stripped. God's word says, no, you're not great. Okay? Then conversely, I'm so bad, I'm so bad, I'm so awful, I'm so awful. Romans 3.25 says this. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. That, that word atonement, he did not demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand and unpunished. Unpunished and atonement. Here's what that means. When we say, I'm so good, I'm so good, God says, all have sinned. Okay, so I'm not so good. So I'm so bad, I'm so bad, I'm so bad. No, 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 no. Christ has atoned, meaning he has purchased your death. Paid in full. Done. It's arrogant because you think you can get two payments out of one death. It's arrogant because you think you can get an invoice for the same thing multiple times and have to keep paying it over and over and over. When Christ's word says, no, your sin is done and paid for. It's over. Now, approach God with these two things in the same. Instead of thinking, God, I, 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 can't, I, can't, I can't confess to people. They'll, forget, they'll, they'll cast me out. God says, I won't. I have, to, I have to fight or flight. I have to put up. I have to protect. Circumstance can't affect me. I have to, I have to be good. Ah, you're not so good. But if I admit that, I'll be forgotten. No, you won't. I won't forget you. Why? Because my son has already swallowed death for you, swallowed your sin. That's what it says. When you say I'm so bad or I'm so good, what you're saying is my thoughts, my feelings, my heart are more true than God's word. And that's wildly untrue. Now, what happens? I said I was going to try to be as pastoral as I could. What happens when you believe two things? I am not good and I am not bad. Well, then what are we? Well, we're neutral. Uh, no, we're not. What do you mean, no, we're not? We're always either becoming more like Christ or less like Christ. Every single second of every single day, we're becoming more like Christ or less like Christ. If I'm not good and I'm not bad, then I must be in the middle. And the reality is, 
No. The reality is, we are not our own, but we're in Him. We're indwelled by the Spirit. It's not that I'm so good or I'm so bad. It's that He's so good. It changes everything when we say that. When we stop focusing on self, when we stop looking at our lives as justification to why we should live, and we start looking to His life for justification of why we're loved, changes everything about us. Paul, the, the apostle, writer of many, many books in the New Testament, says this when he says, I'm the chief amongst all sinners. <laughs> Come at me. <laughs> I don't care. You're like, wow. He doesn't care. No, Paul doesn't. Paul does not care. He's like honey badger. There's a few of us that got that one. I can't, I'm not going to repeat that from up here, by the way. <laughs> but honey badger don't care, okay? I'll let that marinate a little bit, just like the spirit seeping into us. When I say, it's not how good I am, but how good he is, I can say, yeah, I'm a sinner saved by grace. And you go, yeah, you are a sinner. Like, I know. Circumstance doesn't rock me. Conversely, bad news doesn't rock me, but also good times don't rock me. And you say, wait, wait a second. Good times don't rock you? Yeah. When things are going good, do you ever think about the disciplines of fighting for injustice? When things are going good, do you ever think about those who are in need? If life's going good, if you're receiving blessing, if you're receiving gifts, if everything's just a-okay, you forget that there's still sin, wickedness, and horrid things in the world, and you won't fight for them. You'll forget about them. You'll focus only on the good things. Isn't that a, isn't that a life adage? Focus on the good things. You know what I say to that? Unbiblical. It is, because if I only focus on the good things, you know what I'll always say about life? There's nothing wrong. So why should I need to change anything? Ooh, do you see? Friends, let me, let me try to get down to this bringing on trauma instead of keeping boundaries. I wanna go back to the rhythms, I wanna go back to liturgy, I wanna go back to family dinners, in which the only way that you will give up your time, your energy, your money, your opinions, your thoughts, your feelings, the only way you'll give that up, I promise you, the only way you won't go down without a fight, swinging, my rights, my rights, my rights. No, your rights don't mean anything. And I say that lovingly because Christ said, my rights mean nothing. And you say, well, I, I have to fight to protect myself. No, you don't. He's already fought to protect you. He's already died the death. He's already done everything to make sure that you can be a person that avails yourself openly and willingly to all manner of people without protecting or without fighting because he looks at you and says, I purchased you with a price and you're now, in, you're now beloved. Do you get that? Children who don't know they're standing will fight for mom and dad's attention. Children who know they're standing don't have to because they receive it willingly. Do you see, friends? So when I say, get rid of boundaries, can I redeem something? I want to I supplant a word. Have the term jurisdiction replace boundaries in your life. It'll go a lot better. If you have proper jurisdiction and not boundaries, boundaries are protective, are they not? Boundaries are saying, nope, this is mine, don't touch. I'm going to fence off right here. You can't have this. Imagine... Do you know who have no boundaries in life with anything that happens to them? Parents. 
Parents have no boundaries. My, my children get to knock on my door any single time of the night, any single time of the morning. And there, there's no private section. I mean, we barely have a closet that we shut, and I always keep my foot on it like this as I'm changing. Because the children could be around the house and come in, and they have no understanding of, of privacy whatsoever. Do you know what happens to my sleep with children, with my wife's sleep with children? That's taken. How about our money? Yeah. <laughs> That's gone. <laughs> money is taken by children. Time is taken by children. Sleep is taken by children. Now imagine I were a father and I looked at my children and said to my daughter who comes into my room in the middle of the night as she's crying out and I say, honey, dad has boundaries. The office is closed right now. I'll see you tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. She's wailing out because she has a nightmare. What would you think of me as a father? Truly and honestly, you would say, that's awful, and it would be. Parents take on trauma for their children so their children don't have to endure it. Friends, friends, please. Parents take on trauma for their children so we don't have to endure it. That's what God the Father did through Christ the Son that empowers us by the Spirit to do the exact same thing for others. If you say, I have my boundaries, you cannot take this thing from me. What you're saying is this thing, whatever that thing is, do you know what you've just identified in your life? If I were to tell you, what area can God not go, what area can people not go into you and say, oh, they, they have no boundary over this thing. Do you know what you've just identified? Your God. Whatever is answered right there, if you say, my feelings, no one can touch my feelings. My, my personal space, no one can touch my personal space. My thoughts and opinions, no one can touch that. My money, my time. Do you know what you just identified? Your actual God. Your idol. The thing you cherish most in life. But if you say to yourself, just like a parent says to a child, you have access to me all the time, honey. Whether it be 3 a.m. and you're crying out and dad hasn't slept or mom hasn't slept in ages and we have another basketball tournament and it costs $352, real thing, by the way. And you're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> if I say, no, I have, I have boundaries. Change it to jurisdiction. Because you know who I'm not paying $352 to? The entire team. Do you know who I am doing it to? My child. Now, why is that important? Do you see the distinction between boundaries and jurisdiction? I have jurisdiction over my child. I have presence with my child. I have relationship with my child. I'm not going to just pour everything out because then I wouldn't have anything. I'm finite. Instead, God says, give everything you can to this jurisdiction. So who is that? Currently, and I'll, I'll apply it to myself, then I'll ask you to apply it to you. It's my family. It's my neighbors. I have on Kyler Avenue. It's the church. And it's people that I interact with who are in need when I have a supply to give them. That's my jurisdiction. And to those people, you know what we are called to do? Have no boundaries. And you say to yourself, well, pastor, pastor, I'm gonna, that's really hard for me. I'm going to have a broken heart by that. Can I tell you a little secret? If you're, if you're kicking the tires on faith, if you're kicking the tires on this Jesus guy, and you want to never have a broken heart, do you know what you should do? Not become a Christian. Sincerely. If you want to protect yourself so much that you never ever have to give anything, you never ever have to have a broken heart, you never remain vulnerable to allow other people, don't, 
don't come to faith because you're in for a world of hurt. <laughs> you're in for a world of hurt in which you say, well, I want to protect myself. I'm going to end with this. Christians are those who don't simply get over hurt or ignore hurt. They swallow hurt, just like Christ swallowed death. There's this very famous study that happened uh, during World War II. It was in Minnesota, and it was by a, a, a group of church people. And this study that happened in Minnesota during World War II was on starvation. And I, I found this out. Malcolm Gladwell did a podcast on it. And it's the starvation study. And this group of churchgoers uh, came and, and offered themselves to a wildly, wildly, wildly awful experiment. They agreed to starve themselves for months on end to figure out what happens to your body on starvation and then what happens to your body to get something we now call K-rations. And these K-rations are, are basically like your building block for what you get when you're out serving in the military. It's got like every, every nutritional thing that you need for a day. You have one ration of it. To understand what that was, these people endured suffering. They took on starvation. They removed themselves. They were traumatized. And what happened from K-rations is actually we learned a great bit of, of information on how dietary restrictions work with starving communities in the world on different continents like Africa and Asia. And now those things that were gleaned from this group of people who willingly subjected themselves to literally starvation, I think one gentleman went from 185 pounds down to 105 pounds. And they did interviews with them later and they said, you're traumatized. And to this day, a really, 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 really horrible thing happened to one gentleman where he was working on his house years later after the experiment. And for some odd reason, he still doesn't know that the trauma that happened to his body happened to his brain, it happened to his emotion. And he took a hammer and he just started hitting his own hand with it. Trauma. And they asked that gentleman, the interviewer said, would you, now knowing what you know now, would you go back and sign up for the experiment? Do you know what they all said? Every last one of them. Yes. They said, you don't have to. I know, we volunteered. Why? Because what happened to me subjected other people in the world to understand how to feed and serve them better. Church, friends, that's a Christian. A Christian is not somebody who says, I must protect, I must protect, I must protect, but I must give, I must give, I must give. Why? Because I'm so assured by the Father in heaven that he has given so much more to me than I could ever hope for. Do you see? Assurance only comes once you understand that the Spirit is holding you close, empowering you to do unnatural things, supernatural things, because you yourself know that God the Father has given you so much. And if you don't believe that, can I encourage you? Don't serve. Sincerely. I, I'm, that's, it's going to bring you heartache. Rather, if you know the heartache, if you count the costs, as Scripture says, give unendingly. So the next time a job promotion comes up and you might think to yourself, oh, this is a really good opportunity to make more money, you think to yourself, but is it going to help the church? And you might say, well, I have every right to get that job promotion. You do. Would you restrict yourself? Every time you say, well, I have the opportunity to go do this amazing uh, thing that's happening, but it would take time away from my family or take time away from friends or take time away for this, 
and you say, I'm going to restrict myself for the betterment of what God is doing in my life. Do you see, church? Do you see, friends? Would you be a death eater so that other people don't have to endure death? Or do you want to protect yourself and maybe, just maybe, not understand what it fully is to be accepted by Christ, by the Spirit that enables us to do unnatural things because God did the most unnatural thing. He became flesh and died. That was unnatural to God, and yet he did it. Let's pray. Thanks for tuning into this week's COTB Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us online, you can find us at cotb.life.